It's a pleasure to introduce John Allison. He's the president and chief executive officer of the Cato Institute. Uh, you've read his bio. I think you know about his career in banking. Uh, he really built uh, with his team, but through his executive leadership, BB&T Bank, from $4.5 billion, so roughly my income, uh, to $152 billion in assets during his tenure. Is recognized as one of the top successful CEOs in the world for having done that. Having left BB&T and built up an astonishing uh, business, he then went to Wake Forest University School of Business where he uh, taught business and business management there. Uh, I should mention one thing and that this is a person who has uh, lived his philosophy, which is a philosophy of productive effort, of the use of the mind, of conscious uh, activity and behavior to add value to the world. And we're very pleased that he's now doing that on behalf of the Cato Institute. John Allison. Thanks, Tom, and good evening. Uh, thank all of you for joining us and participating in Cato University. We're really glad to have you with us. And I know we have a lot of uh, sponsors in the crowd, and I want to thank you for your support of Cato. You know, some of those homeless people uh, Tom mentioned were Cato employees, and we just need some more money to <laughs> so they can go buy homes. Uh, the, uh, tonight, uh, I'm going to talk about a book I wrote called The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, which was uh, I wrote actually right before I, I came to Cato. I'll tell you a couple of reasons that I wrote the book. Number one was the left, the status, have done a great job of creating a myth. And that myth has been the foundation for some really destructive uh, public policy. And if we don't defeat that myth, it's going to continue to be the foundation for destructive public policy. The myth is that the financial crisis was caused by the deregulation of the banking business and greed on Wall Street. Uh, in fact, the banking industry was not deregulated under George Bush. Uh, we had three major new regulations. The Privacy Act, the Patriot Act, and Sarbanes-Oxley were all passed under Bush. We were not deregulated. We were misregulated. And while in my 40-year uh, career there's always been plenty of greed on Wall Street, there's not one shred of evidence there was any more greed than usual that caused the financial crisis. They just made that up. Um, the uh, other reason I thought <coughs> that it would be useful to write the book, it, it seemed like it might be helpful to have somebody that actually knew what he was talking about write a book about the financial crisis. <laughs> Most of what you read is written by people who have no idea what they're talking about. The book has six basic themes. The first theme is the real cause of the financial crisis was primarily government policy. We don't live in a free market in the United States. We live in something called a mixed economy. Mixture varies a lot by industry. Technology is largely unregulated and has done very well uh, through the financial crisis. Financial services is the most regulated industry in the world, and it's not surprising that our biggest problems were in the most regulated industry. Secondly, government policy created a massive misinvestment, what's called a bubble. That bubble got focused in residential real estate. It burst, as all bubbles do, destroying trillions of dollars of wealth and millions of jobs. Thirdly, a number of large financial institutions, so-called Wall Street, made some very serious mistakes. If I had been in charge, I would have let those companies fail. However, those mistakes were secondary and were highly incented by government policy. Fourthly, and most unfortunately, particularly for the young people in this room, Everything, practically, that we've done since the financial crisis started, even things that might have some short-term benefit, will reduce our standard of living in the long term. 
Fifthly, and, and most significantly, the real cause of the financial crisis is philosophical, and the real cure is philosophical, and I'm going to talk about that a good bit tonight. And finally, if we don't change direction relatively soon, the United States faces a really dim, dark economic future. We have the formula for uh, economic tragedy unless we change direction. What happened? Uh, how did we get in the mess we are in, still struggling to get out of? Um, we invested at least $3 trillion and argumentatively $8 trillion too much in residential real estate. We built too many houses, too big of houses. We built houses in the wrong place. We should have been investing in technology, <clears throat> manufacturing capacity, agriculture, education. We should have saved more and spent less. We should have borrowed less from foreigners. The excessive investment in residential real estate is particularly destructive because residential houses are consumption. We might think of our own house as an investment, but we actually consume a house just like you consume an automobile. So if you over-invest in housing, you over-consume. And, and when you over-consume, it's kind of an analogy with agriculture, we ate our seed corn. The capital we should have been accumulating to produce goods and services in the future, we consumed. We created excess consumption, which reduces our standard of living in the long term. In addition, in the process of, uh, of uh, <clears throat> this massive overinvestment in residential real estate, we taught millions of people how to do the wrong things. We taught them how to be construction workers, to be uh, real estate mortgage brokers, to be real estate attorneys, and those millions of people are having to learn how to do new jobs. Uh, in addition, construction wages and manufacturing wages are competitive. As we drove up construction wages, we drove up manufacturing wages in the U.S., which made our manufacturing jobs non-competitive, and we drove a lot of jobs over to India and China. Initially, the people in India and China didn't know how to do that work, uh, but now they do, and we're having a hard time getting the jobs back. How did we make a mistake of that magnitude? It's interesting because markets are constantly making mistakes. Markets are constantly learning their experiments, they're correcting all the time. However, markets never make a mistake of that magnitude. Only government policy can incent that kind of error. And the three primary culprits are the Federal Reserve, FDIC insurance, deposit insurance, and government housing policy, specifically Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the giant government-sponsored enterprises. Let's talk a little bit about each one of these entities. In 1913, when the Federal Reserve was created, the monetary system in the United States was nationalized. And that means there's no private monetary system. There's only a government-owned monetary system. A lot of people don't make that connection when they think about the Federal Reserve, but there is, there's no private monetary system. If you're having trouble in the monetary system, you are by definition uh, having problems from a government policy perspective. It would be analogous if interstate highway bridges were falling down. Say the government owns the highways, the bridges are falling down, it's the government's responsibility. But monetary bridges have been falling down and the government owns the monetary system. One of the roles the Federal Reserve assumed after it was created was to reduce volatility in the economy. Uh, the problem with that is, is it reduces volatility in the short term and creates bigger problems in the long term. In a free market, markets are constantly correcting. They're constantly learning. New businesses are being created, but old businesses are failing. And the failure process is as important as the creation process because when an inefficient business goes out of business, its human resources, its capital resources are released to do something more productive. You don't keep making uh, buggy whips. 
When you stop that correction process, all you do is push problems into the future. It'd be analogous to like not disciplining a 13-year-old. You're not going to be too happy when they get to be 16 years old. And that's what the Federal Reserve does. It keeps the correction process from happening. In addition, the very existence of the Fed, create, <coughs> Fed creates a huge temptation. When the Fed was created in 1913, the United States government basically had no debt. And now, of course, we have a huge level of debt. And one reason for that, <coughs> if you're a politician, you like to get things away because that buys you votes, but you don't like to tax people because that's not very popular. And the way you make that happen is using the Federal Reserve to allow you to run massive deficits. A uh, huge temptation for politicians. And then we had some very specific mistakes made by Alan Greenspan in particular, and then Bernanke, his successor. Greenspan had been the long-term head of the Federal Reserve. He was a maestro. He was supposed to be magical. And in the early 2000s, we were having an economic correction, which, by the way, we needed. Uh, Greenspan uh, was uh, getting ready to retire, and he wanted to go out as a hero. And so he tried to keep that correction from happening by creating something called negative real interest rates. That meant that you could borrow at less in the inflation rate, and you could borrow at a whole lot less in the appreciation rate in real estate, which encouraged many people to leverage up. And then his successor, Bernanke, <clears throat> realizing, by the way, that they had made a mess, uh, created something called an inverted yield curve. That meant that short-term rates were higher than long-term rates. That's an unnatural phenomenon. Markets never invert yield curves because if you're going to invest long, you want a higher return. If, and if, when short-term rates are higher than long-term rates, that's the Fed manipulating interest rates. The dilemma with that is banks borrow short and lend long. So if interest rates, short-term rates are higher than long-term rates, banks have negative margins. So they were buying, we were buying watermelons <clears throat> for $10 and selling them for $8. Not very much fun. Now, the banking business is a funny business. You can get higher returns by taking more risk. At the same time this was going on, the Fed was projecting good times forever, as were most private economists. So it was very tempting that banks went out on the risk spectrum, and most of the really bad loans were made during this point in the inverted yield curve. Fundamentally, we couldn't have had a bubble unless the Federal Reserve provided the money. Where did the money come from? Second culprit was the FDIC. The FDIC insures bank deposits, which sounds good, but it destroys market discipline. Give you an example, BB&T operates in Atlanta, Georgia, and a lot of community banks failed in that market. We took over one of those community banks, a real typical story. It was about a dozen guys that got together that were in the motel business. They raised a little capital, and they leveraged that capital by buying certificates of deposit at very high interest rates. The depositors were happy with the interest rate because the government was guaranteeing those deposits. They then took that money and lent to their cronies in the motel business, who then went broke, and the FDIC lost 50 cents on the dollar. On a bigger scale, Washington Mutual, IndyMac, Countrywide, uh, uh, <clears throat> all large financial institutions, all which failed, uh, all finance high-risk lending business using deposit insurance. Without deposit insurance, they never could have raised the capital in the private market to do the high-risk lending they were doing. The third culprit, and kind of what I'd call the, the proximate cause, is government housing policy. And this goes back a long time where the government's tried to raise the home ownership rate over what's called the natural market rate, under the theory that home ownership's a good thing. Well, I own a home, and I think owning a home's a good thing. However, there's no evidence that owning a home per se changes human behavior. It's exactly the opposite. The set of characteristics that allow you to own a home, the self-discipline, the savings, uh, is what's positive from a home ownership perspective. And encouraging people to buy homes they can't afford, young people to buy homes too soon, is obviously not good. The uh, 
process for encouraging home ownership goes back to the tax laws, which have been favorable to home ownership, but particularly in the early 1970s, we started a, a government-driven trend trying to raise this home ownership rate by providing financing to higher risk uh, uh, borrowers called affordable housing. The first big step was something called the Community Reinvestment Act, which basically forced banks into the subprime affordable housing lending business. Now, banks aren't designed to make high-risk loans because we're lending other people's money, so we never should have been in that business. That started the trend, <clears throat> but the really big event happened in September of 1999. I remember it well. I was CEO of BB&T at the time, where Bill Clinton, who was President of the United States, announced that Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, these giant government-sponsored enterprises, had to have at least half their loans in affordable housing, i.e. subprime mortgages. Interestingly enough, a number of economists, including some liberal economists, said, wow, this is risky. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times of all, all uh, uh, places that said, wow, this is risky. The legitimate affordable housing, i.e. subprime market, is not that big. <clears throat> the only way that Freddie and Fannie can meet this goal is by taking a tremendous amount of risk. They've got to get, take riskier and riskier loans to meet this huge, huge goal. And Freddie and Fannie could get in financial trouble if they do... They keep lowering their standards, and they're so big they could take out the U.S. financial system and the U.S. economy, and it could happen in 10 years. Nine years later, it happened. Now, people have heard about Freddie and Fannie. A lot of people don't know what they, they do. They absolutely dominate the home finance business in the United States. Today, with their, their uh, brother, uh, the FHA, they have about 90% market share. So if you go down to a bank or you go down to a savings and loan or you go down to a mortgage broker, there's a 90% probability your mortgage will be sold to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, even though you may not know it because the bank may keep the servicing. The reason they dominate the business is that government guarantees their debts. And if the government guarantees your debt, you have a lower cost of capital than any private institution can have. Even before they failed, they were leveraged 1,000 to one. For every dollar, of equity, they had $1,000 of debt. It'd be like you having a net worth of $10,000 and owing $10 million. And of course, the only way you're going to get away with that is the government guarantees your debts. When Freddie and Fannie failed, they owed $5 trillion, and they had $2 trillion in subprime mortgages. They absolutely dominated the subprime mortgage business. They were the big kahuna. And as they tried to reach this goal that was imposed on them of Congress of having half their loans in affordable housing, they had to get deeper and deeper, i.e. take more and more risk. And since they had such a big market share, they sucked the whole market, share, the whole market down, down with them. Politics, by, by the way, played a big role in Freddie and Fannie. I was personally on a committee of the Financial Services Roundtable, which is the largest banks, and we were running the numbers, and it was mathematically certain that Freddie and Fannie were going broke. Anybody in this room, a 15-year-old kid, would say, hey, these guys are going broke. Uh, we got to meet with really interesting people in Congress, like uh, Chris Dodd and, and uh, Barney Frank. In fact, I call Barney Frank the evil one. And the, the reason for that, the guy was smart, and yet he absolutely evaded the facts. And, and why did he evade? Because he had a religious belief in affordable housing, and because Freddie and Fannie were huge political contributors. They were the single biggest contributor to the Democratic Party, and they were big contributors to the Republican Party. So Congress watched Freddie and Fannie fail. Lots of bells and whistles, but fundamentally we had a financial crisis because the Federal Reserve printed too much money trying to avoid a natural good correction in the, in the market. That created a massive misinvestment. They got focused in housing because of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, 
and that was really excess consumption, and we're paying the price for excess consumption for massive misinvestment. Uh, lots of bells and whistles. Uh, bells and whistles are things like the, what happened in the derivatives market, what happened with uh, uh, so-called negative amortization or pick-a-payment mortgages, the, the misratings by the rating agencies, and I cover all that in my book, and I'll be glad to answer questions about it, or you can read about it in the book, but I want to change from the discussion of economics to something I think is more important. Because I think the real cause of the financial crisis was philosophical, and the real cure is philosophical. <clears throat> the real cause of the financial crisis was a combination of altruism and pragmatism. Altruism is not benevolence. Benevolence is a good thing. What altruism is, is otherism. It says that everybody else is important but you. As interpreted by status, it says the collective is important and the individual doesn't matter. Everybody has a right to a nice house. Provided by who? Everybody has a right to free medical care. Provided by who? You know, my right to free medical care is my right to force a doctor to provide me with medical care or to force somebody else to pay for that doctor. That is exactly the opposite of the American concept of rights. In the American concept of rights, you have the right to what you produce, what you create. You do not have the right what somebody else produces, what somebody else creates. In um, business and in politics, altruism tends to be combined with pragmatism because altruism doesn't work very well in the real world. It certainly doesn't work. Uh, in the business world. So the backup philosophy in politics, the backup philosophy in business is pragmatism. And what's the rule in pragmatism? Do what works. Here's the dilemma. Lots of things work in the short term that are incredibly destructive in the long term. Uh, negative amortization mortgages, affordable housing loans, subprime mortgages work for years and then created an economic disaster. The problem with being a pragmatist is you can't be rational because rationality re requires a long-term perspective. You also can't have integrity, because integrity is acting consistent with principles. If you combine altruism with pragmatism, you get something I call the free lunch mentality. The vast majority of people in the United States realize there's some problem with Social Security and Medicare, and yet there's no real effort to deal with the massive problems we had there. And any politician that got serious about dealing with it could probably not get elected. Um, that free lunch mentality leads to a lack of personal responsibility. And a lack of personal responsibility is fundamentally the cause of the failure of, of, of free societies. In fact, I would argue the most important issue in our society today is personal responsibility. Um, so when I talk to college students, I ask them this question. Are you responsible for yourself, or are you entitled to what somebody else produces, what somebody else creates? And one thing I try to point out about entitlement, you know, I'm a high-income person, so it's easy to see yourself when you're a high-income person as a victim of entitlement because you pay high taxes. But actually, the real victims are the people that view themselves as entitled. Because if you view yourself as entitled, you are fundamentally dependent on other people. And if you're fundamentally dependent, you really can't pursue your personal happiness. You can't achieve happiness. So the price of believing you're entitled is that you can't really achieve happiness. The um, founding fathers talked about the tyranny of the majority. And they were talking about the abuse of individual rights, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. But they realized when 51% of the people voted uh, a free lunch from the 49%, problems followed. Because then 60% won a free lunch from 40%, then 70% won a free lunch from 30%, and then finally the 30% quit.
Just like the cause is philosophical, so is the cure. And the cure was expressed, I think, very deeply and very eloquently by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Each individual's moral right to their own life. Each individual's moral right to the pursuit of their personal happiness. Each individual's moral right to the product of their labor. If you produce a lot, you get a lot, including the right to give it away to whoever you want to for whatever reason you want to. If you think about that moral prerogative, it demands personal responsibility because there is no free lunch. It also demands and rewards rationality. It demands and rewards self-discipline. It demands and rewards integrity. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let's talk about liberty for a moment because as libertarians, we are fundamentally defenders of liberty. You know, but a lot of people, a lot of statists talk of themselves as being for liberty just in certain limited areas that, you know, uh, that, that they think liberty can be constrained. Um, but what very few people really grasp is the, the significance of liberty, why it matters beyond just being nice. It's nice to be free, but liberty's a lot more important than that. Everything that is alive has a method of saying a lie. A lion has claws to hunt with a deer has speed to avoid the hunter, and we have the capacity to think. And our capacity to think is literally our only means of survival, success, and happiness. There are no shortcuts. There are no free lunches. There are certain sets of characteristics that allow people to think productively. And the most fundamental of those characteristics is you must be able to pursue the truth as you believe it to be true. You must be able to pursue what you think is right. If somebody forces you to act inconsistent with your beliefs, you literally cannot think. If somebody forces you to act like 2 plus 2 is 5, you cannot think. Many government rules and regulations, I know this in business for certain, actually force business people to act like 2 plus 2 is 5. And you cannot think when somebody makes you act as if something that you don't believe is true is true. In addition, if you reflect on it, all human progress is based on creativity, on innovation. Because unless somebody does something better, which will be different, there cannot be any progress. Creativity, innovation is only possible to an independent thinker. Somebody that thinks like the crowd cannot be innovative, cannot be creative, cannot contribute to human progress. Uh, that's why entrepreneurs are so important. Entrepreneurs take the ideas of scientists and engineers and turn them into realities. Without entrepreneurs, there literally is no human progress. It's why communism and socialism is doomed to failure. Because those systems destroy innovation, they destroy creativity. We just published a book uh, called Poverty and Progress that looked at human life expectancy going back as far as those kind of things can be estimated. And it's very interesting. From whenever Homo sapiens evolved until the late 1700s, there was very little progress in human life expectancy. It was basically the same. And then in the late 1700s, there began a revolution. First it was Western civilization, now it's the world where human life expectancy has been improving exponentially. Something happened in the late 1700s that was very important. It was more important than fire. It was more important than the wheel. It was a revolutionary idea. The idea was individual rights, rule of law, capitalism was invented in the late 1700s. And it resulted in a radical improvement of human well-being because it's the only system consistent with man's nature as a thinking being that must pursue the truth as he believes it to be, that must be able to experiment, to innovate, to pursue new ideas in a creative way. A creative way. 
It's not by chance that we had that huge improvement of human well-being. It's because of a great innovation and insight, capitalism. You know, um, when you think about that, then liberty's not just nice. <laughs> it's not just fun. It is necessary for human well-being. And things that can, actions by government that constrain liberty, constrain freedom, reduce the quality of life for all of us in the long term. How about the pursuit of happiness? The pursuit of happiness. Before Jefferson, before the thinkers of the Enlightenment, everybody existed for somebody else's good. Good to the king, good to the state, good to the group. Nobody existed for their own good. Jefferson said that each of us had the moral right to the pursuit of our personal happiness. We're not guaranteed success in that pursuit, but we have that right. That is the idea that changed the world. It created the most successful society in history and the most benevolent society in history. When people have the right to their own life, they're naturally nicer to other people. In socialist and communist societies, everybody ends up hating each other because they're all slaves to each other. And I agree with Jefferson. Each of us has the moral right to the pursuit of our personal happiness. Let's talk about the pursuit of happiness for a minute. If you think about that, that is a very selfish idea, right? To pursue your personal happiness. Very selfish idea. Let's talk about selfishness for a minute. Let's define it as acting in one's rational, long-term self-interest. And the reason it's necessary to define it is we get this false dichotomy. And the false dichotomy is to take advantage of other people or self-sacrifice, neither one of which make any sense. In fact, a lot of people think that selfish is about taking advantage of other people. Here's the irony. Taking advantage of other people is not selfish. It's self-destructive. First, people aren't going to trust you. You might fool Tom, Dick, and Harry, but they're going to tell James, Sue, and Fred, and nobody's going to trust you. You probably know people like that. You're not going to be successful, and you're not going to be happy if you're not trusted. In addition, if you spend your time trying to manipulate other people, I don't mean to influence them in a legitimate manner, but trying to trick and fool other people by letting go of the reality, you're going to do a lot more damage to your consciousness than you do to theirs. Taking advantage of other people is not selfish, it's self-destructive. How about self-sacrifice? That is a moral code in our society, right? You see it everywhere in the newspapers, you see it on church, you see it wherever you go. Uh, every, we also are supposed to self-sacrifice, right? I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. And for those that, are, that have children, I would like for you to think about how you would like for your children to answer this question. I actually think it's the most important question you can ever ask yourself. Do you have as much right to your life as anybody else has to their life? Do you have as much right to your life as anybody else has to their life? Of course you do. Of course you do. Why would you believe anything different than that? So taking advantage of other people and self-sacrifice, neither one make any sense. But there is a rigorous, demanding moral code that underlies free societies. And that moral code is called the trader principle. Fundamentally, life is about trading value for value. It's about getting better together. In our business at BB&T, we helped our clients be economically successful. They let us make a profit doing it. We got better together. Life is about figuring out how to get better together. In fact, there are only two stable relationship conditions, win-win and lose-lose. Whenever you get uh, greedy and you set up a win-lose relationship, you see the spousal relationship sometimes, your partner will get better and you'll end up in a lose-lose relationship. Interestingly enough, whenever you get self-sacrificial, and you set up a lose-win relationship, you'll get better, and you end up in a lose-lose relationship. So in any meaningful relationship in your life, you should ask, what's in it for me? That's a very fair question. 
But you should also ask what's in it for them. Because if there's nothing in it for them, in the end, there'll be nothing in it for you. Life is about creating win-win relationships. And of course, it's in your rational self-interest to help the people you care about because you value those people. Your family, your friends, the people you work with, if they're valuable to you, you care about them. You want to help them. That is in your self-interest. In fact, helping your children, if you love your children, is not a sacrifice. Love, in fact, is the ultimate expression of selfishness. Now, most people don't think of love that way, but I'll use this for the college students in this room. Uh, you're getting ready to get married, really big event in your life. Your future spouse comes running up to you and says, Honey, I'm so excited about marrying you. This is the biggest self-sacrifice I've ever made. <laughs> not exactly what you want to hear, right? Love is selfish. Um, I believe it is in my rational self-interest to support the United Way. United Way is an umbrella charity organization, does a lot of good in the community where I live. I wouldn't want to live in that community if it didn't have a United Way, and I wouldn't want my children to live in that kind of community. I think it is in my rational self-interest to support the United Way. So here's the issue. People think about selfish as either being taken advantage of other people or what I call a tunnel vision view of the world. That's not selfish, that's self-destructive, that's irrational. What would really be required to be selfish? Actually, being selfish is hard work, but it's very, very high payback. First, it would require the, asking a fundamental question. What kind of world would I like to live in? And what would I enjoy doing in that kind of world? What kind of world would I like to live in? And what would I enjoy doing living in that kind of world? And that doesn't have to be grandiose. I might want to just start a restaurant chain that had better food at lower prices. It doesn't have to be grandiose. But what kind of world would I like to live in? And what would I enjoy doing living in that world? And that would create a sense of purpose in my life. I would also take care of my body. I would eat properly. I'd exercise. I'd take care of my mind. I'd study, think, uh, write. I would work hard to create healthy relationships with other human beings that share my values because other human relationships are important to me. What if everybody had a sense of purpose, did the best they could to take care of their body, did the best they could to take care of their mind, work hard to create healthy human relationships? I would argue that 90% of the world's problems would go away if everybody acted in their rational self-interest. You know, constantly in the press, you hear the problem with the world is that people are too selfish. My observation is very few people are selfish. Most people are self-destructive. I had a brother-in-law, drank 24 beers a day, got cirrhosis of the liver, drank 24 beers a day, died. People say he was selfish. No, he was self-destructive. Bernie Madoff stole billions of dollars from his family and friends over 30 years. All the people that was important to his life he stole from. The best day in his life, he said, was the day he got arrested. Can you imagine spending all your time stealing money from your family and friends? That wasn't selfish. That was self-destructive. We need people that have a sense of purpose, that take care of their mind, take care of their bodies, that work hard to create healthy human relationships, that act in their rational self-interest. I do not believe we can defend a free society unless we're willing to defend the pursuit of happiness. That's a very fundamental idea. Um, I'll share with you a couple of thoughts about the economy. Since I'm a banker, I always get asked about the economy. I'll, I'll tell you one thing I do know. E e economics is not at the art where we can actually predict the future. So, but I'm going to make a prediction anyway. How's that? Um, I think we are in some kind of economic recovery. It's a very poor recovery relative to where we ought to be. We ought to be growing at 4 or 5%. We're growing at 2%. 
Uh, the problem with that is kind of a, it's kind of like lulls us to sleep because we don't really realize how bad things are. Uh, uh, but we are having some kind of some kind of economic recovery. I think that will probably continue for the next five. We may have some ups and downs over the next five to ten years. What scares me is to look out ten to twenty years in the future where we have an economic disaster coming unless we change direction. If we continue with altruism, with the uh, with pragmatism, with free lunch mentality, it does not end well. Unfunded liabilities under Social Security, Medicare, Obamacare, government unfunded pension plans are over $100 trillion. We've been preparing a balance sheet for the U.S. government. The preliminary numbers are if it were a business, it would have a negative net worth of $40 trillion, and it's running a $2 trillion annual operating deficit if we were accruing for liabilities, and it gets worse going forward. They're not very, not very pretty numbers. In addition, we have a dysfunctional foreign policy. We have a big problem with the retirement of the baby boomer generation, and we have a failed K-12 education system. Those are pretty big problems. It reminds me very much of that story I told you about Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, where we were meeting with Congress, and it was mathematically certain <coughs> Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae were going broke. Well, it's mathematically certain the United States is going broke. We can argue whether it's 10 years or 20 years, but it's in that frame, it's mathematically certain. And that's not politics, it's just math. Um, the interesting thing about that is, is, so far, our reaction has been very similar to the reaction to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Um, and countries don't go broke the way businesses do. Classically, they hyperinflate, and they pay Social Security, they just pay it with funny money. And that's probably the way we go unless we change direction. Now, um, I use the analogy uh, with medical care. We have been diagnosed with a form of cancer that's terminal if it's not treated. The good news, it is treatable. That's actually, it's not too late. We're running out of time, but it's not too late. However, the treatment's not much fun. It's chemotherapy. And so the question is not, do we have the ability to fix our problems, but do we have the will to fix the problems? I constantly get asked, is, is it hopeless? No, I don't think it's hopeless. Are there odds against us? Yes. Are we fighting a tough fight? I was, we were talking at, at dinner about the fact, when I look at the founding fathers of the United States and the odds they faced fighting the, fighting the biggest army in the history of the world at that time, and they, nobody would have thought they could win, and they won. So we have better odds than they have, but we have a tough fight. We have a tough fight. I'm actually in the optimistic category for two basic reasons. First is we know how to fix our problems. Uh, part of it is tough. We have to have some self-discipline around uh, Social Security and Medicare. But the other part is actually easy. We should be driving a much more rapid growth rate through the U.S. economy than we are today. And the difference between 4 and 5% compounded and 2% compounded over 15 or 20 years is huge. And all we need to do that is to eliminate interferences in the marketplace, to get rid of the regulatory structure. And, and so we don't have to invent anything new. We simply have to let the creativity and innovation that's natural in the American economy to happen. Uh, so there is a solution, and we kind of know what the solution is. The question is, do we have the courage to implement it? On the courage side, <clears throat> I do think the United States is a unique place. And I get discouraged sometimes about political elections and those kind of things, but the Americans have a unique, special sense of life. Uh, we are fundamentally individualistic people. We're fundamentally innovative and creative people. We've, <laughs> we've demonstrated that over and over again throughout our history. Whether that group's a majority or not, I don't know, but I know a lot of Americans still have that American sense of life. And I think that's a non-trivial. It's very different from the problems they face, in my opinion, in Europe. Um, 
I want to close with a thought around that, and it really relates to the issue of the pursuit of happiness. If you think about it, the end game in life is achieving happiness. And I don't mean having a good time on Friday night. Nothing wrong with having a good time on Friday night. But I mean happiness in the Aristotelian sense. Happiness in the, in the sense that you're 80 years old and you look back and say, man, that was tough. I'm glad I did it. Blood, sweat, and tears happiness. Hard-earned, achieved happiness. That is the end of the game in life, right? Sometimes business people get confused. They think money's the end of the game. Nothing wrong with money. Money's a good thing, but it's not an end. Happiness is the end of the game. And the foundation for happiness is real self-esteem. Not fake self-esteem, but real self-esteem. Self-esteem is a complex subject, but I want to share a couple of thoughts with you about it. First, uh, self-esteem is fundamentally self-confidence in your ability to live and be successful given the facts of reality. So you earn self-esteem by how you live your life. Nobody can give you self-esteem. You cannot give anybody self-esteem. You cannot give your children self-esteem. Self-esteem has to be earned. Live your life with integrity. Raise your self-esteem. That's why integrity is so important. Second thought about self-esteem, for everybody in this room and for the vast majority of people on this planet, the single biggest driver of your self-esteem is your work. And I use work in the broadest context, raising children very productive, very hard work. Whatever you define your work to be, its most important aspect is that it drives your self-esteem because you spend a disproportionate amount of time, effort, and energy at work. Something I said many times to the employees of BB&T. It's real important to BB&T that you do your job well. It's far, far more important to you. Might fool me about how well you do your job. Might fool your boss about how well you do your job. But you'll never fool you. If you don't do your work the best you can do it, given your level of skill, given your level of knowledge, if you don't do your work the best you can do it, you will lower your self-esteem. By the way, for the students in here, if you don't do your schoolwork, your uh, the best you can possibly do it, give them your level of skill, give them your level of knowledge, you can't do the impossible, you will lower your self-esteem even if you get a good grade. Now here's the good news, the flip's also true. Do your work the best you can do it, give them your level of skill, give them your level of knowledge, and you will raise your self-esteem, which is more important than whether you get a promotion or more money or a good grade, because it's about your character. And there is actually a huge social implication of that. Take a uh, construction worker, a bricklayer, has a very tough, hard, grinding life. My granddad had that kind of life, tough, hard, grinding life. But he and his, his wife successfully raised their children. Maybe his granddaughter becomes CEO of a publicly traded company, maybe not. <laughs> he has a tough, hard, grinding life, but he gets something very precious from his work. He gets to be proud of himself. He gets to have self-esteem. Take that same bricklayer and give him welfare. He may be better off financially, but he loses something incredibly important. He loses his pride. He loses his self-esteem. You know, um, there's a lot of discussion in Washington today, and basically a lot of the state is what they're selling is security. Uh, they, they're selling security. It's a false sale. It's a security. The formula for security doesn't work, but what they're selling is security. Americans care about security, but this is not the land of security. People didn't get on a boat and come to Jamestown to be secure. The United States is a land of opportunity. The opportunity to be great, the opportunity to fail and try again. But most importantly, the opportunity of that bricklayer to live life on his own terms, to pursue his personal happiness given his beliefs, his values, to pursue his personal happiness 
as a free and independent person. That's why people came to America. That is what made America great. That is the American sense of life. And I think we are fundamentally in the business of defending that sense of life. Thank you very much. I would be glad to answer questions about anything. We've got some microphones, probably would help if here we go. Uh, thank you. Um, a couple of questions, uh, personal decisions that you had to make along the way. So as a banker of a major bank, somewhere along the line you had to decide not to become a crony capitalist. So I wonder if you could go through that process and how that, how that dealt with your board and your investors, because I'm sure there was pressure yes. to become a crony as opposed to a capitalist. Secondly, uh, when, you became, when you came to Cato, here you were uh, CEO of a business. I know you were at Wake Forest for a while, and now you're among intellectuals. <laughs> PhDs, et cetera, et cetera. With your real-world experience, how's it been in a think tank? Oh, those are both great questions. Let me go back to the, start with the crony capitalist question. Uh, it, this is interesting. It, um, when I, my senior year in college, I happened to read Atlas Shrugged. It was a transformational book for me personally. Uh, and then I read almost all uh, Rand's <coughs> literature. Uh, and I got very interested, not from the perspective of politics, which a lot of people get interested in Alice. I got interested in ethics. In the ethic, why were these people successful? What was it that made them successful? And I really tried to integrate the ethics that, that are, that's expressed in Atlas Shrugged and Rand's other writings at a very personal level. Um, and in the belief that practicing the right principles would lead to success in the long term, knowing that it wouldn't always be good in the short term. Um, by chance, when I joined BBT, it was a little farm bank. I, I was most, and I, most of my early career, I was a farm lender to small businesses. But um, I also got the opportunity to create, when I went there, they, we didn't have a training program, so it was small, and I developed a training program. So one of the things I did in the training programs, everybody that went through the BBT training program had to read Atlas Shrug. So, so by the time I got to be CEO, they may not have agreed with, agreed with Atlas Shrug, but they at least had been influenced by that set of ideas. When, when we were picking board members to the degree that I influenced that over the period of time, I was, I was much more interested in their philosophy and worldview than I was their business acumen. You know, what, that mattered, but what, and, and I was able to select board members that, you know, I'm not saying they totally agree with Rand, but they understood that kind of worldview and felt strongly about it. Um, when we bought companies, and I bought 150 companies, I would largely present the BBT philosophy, and then we'd talk about the economics. And I connected the two. I said, in the short term, you know, having certain philosophical positions may actually be detrimental. In the long term, having the right philosophical act drives the outcome. So in, in particularly in the mid-2000s, 2004, 5, and 6, where people were making a gazillion dollars doing crazy stuff, 
we stuck to our neck. We said, look, <laughs> we're not going to do this crazy stuff because it will not work in the long term. I don't care how much money people say they can make doing this. And it's not right. It's just bad for our clients, and you don't build a business doing bad things for your clients in the long term. Okay? You know, one thing I told my employees over and over again, never, ever do anything that you believe is bad for your client, even if you make a profit in the short term, because it'll always come back to haunt you. So we didn't, we, that didn't mean we didn't make mistakes. But we didn't do that crazy stuff. I personally got criticized. The, the, the investment guys said, you guys ought to be doing this. I had sold enough of the board and enough of our shareholders that came through these mergers on this, this fundamental set of philosophical ideas that I didn't have any real problem except you know, getting nasty comments and stuff from institutional investors. And then, of course, when it turned around, it, it worked out very well. Uh, one, one position we took that was interesting that flowed from that um, when, when the Kelo decision passed and, and, and eminent domain was uh, expanded, we took the position we would not make loans to developers that use eminent domain to take property from other individuals. That we, whether the Supreme Court thought it was constitutional or not, we didn't think it was constitutional, we didn't think it was right, and I personally didn't want to look some little old lady in the eye and say, hey, we helped Walmart buy your, force you to sell your house. Now, if you want to sell your house to Walmart, that's great. But Walmart doesn't need the government to make, <laughs> make you sell your house, and I'm not going to lend them money to do it. And I, because I can't be at peace with that. Our board unanimously approved that. Uh, given our philosophy, in a certain sense, we had no choice, which is good. I mean, <laughs> given our philosophical beliefs. Now, the irony is we did lose some public entity business. Uh, some, but we picked up thousands of individuals where eminent domain had already been abused before Kelo. And it was interesting to me. And the biggest thing I got, I got letters and emails all over this. Is, wow, we're so happy to see a business that acts on principles. Businesses will sell their souls for a buck. And I thought that was a terrible thing for world's view of business. Because, and unfortunately, the more I thought about it, that was also true. Businesses will sell their souls a lot of times for a buck. And that's what's hurting the perception of capitalism. It's not capitalism. It's crony capitalism you're talking about. And I'll, I'll tell you one other story related to that. I just got a long answer to your question. But uh, one other story. <laughs> After we made that announcement, two CEOs of two very large banks that I knew, I knew you know, all these guys, called me within about an hour of each other. And they both said exactly the same thing. They called and they said, John, that was a great position you took. I really want to congratulate you on your position with the M&A. I said, thank you very much. I assume you guys will follow. They said, oh no, we don't take positions on public policy. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, both of the CEOs got fired. Now, I don't, maybe, maybe there's a connection. I don't know. Now, in terms of coming to Cato, it's been fun. It's been a learning experience. I am a business guy in my, you know, my background. Uh, it is definitely like herding cats. Uh, I've learned a lot. Uh, I'm trying to imply, you know, employ some techniques. We're really, we did our first real strategic plan. We've, we've just we've allocated some resources in a new and different way. I moved to a different management structure where we have more people involved in the decision process. So I'm, yeah, I think, I'm hoping I'm adding some value. It's, it's going to take a while. People have to be on a learning curve, but I think we're going to add some value and make Cato even more powerful. I think Cato's important. You know, it's, it's, this is just interesting. You know, I made a lot of money, so I don't need money. And I was really enjoying teaching at Wake Forest University. It was fun teaching at <coughs> university. But when the issue came up about Cato, and there seemed to be no other solution to me, but me, I thought, wow, what a tragedy if something happened to Cato. It's, one, it's a really important organization, and I'm never going to be at peace with myself if I don't try to help at Cato because, you know, I think this is a fight for the future of our country and the future of our children and grandchildren. And so, 
you know, I could go down the Caribbean and have a good time, but I really wouldn't have a good time. <laughs> and, and this has been a lot of work in a lot of ways because I've been on a big learning curve. I've had great people like Tom to work with and a lot of other great people, but I've been, but, it, but um, even no matter how much work it's been, I'm glad I chose to do it because I would have hated to see something happen. Okay. Next question. Put some up here. Here we go. Can America flourish economically without a central bank? Yes. <laughs> Can't, absolutely. In fact, uh, we, you know, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> we are really getting ready to create a, a monetary policy center. We talked debating the name under Jim Dorn. We're going to get together the best monetary free market, free uh, non-Fed monitors in the country, and we're going to fight this fight. Uh, two of our scholars have done a lot of work looking from the period from 1870 to 1913. There was no central bank in the United States. And the United States paid down all the debt from the Civil War. Remember, the Civil War, relative to the size of the country, was ten times more important than World War II, right? The damage. We paid it off during that period of time. No central bank. No, we had some ups and downs. They were all relatively short. Some of them were severe, but they were good. That's how markets clear. They got and they went on with business. We had the biggest improvement in the standard of living in the history of man. We integrated millions of rejects, bad immigrants, <laughs> rejects, which most of, many of our families came from, right, including my, uh, during that period of time uh, into the United States, and there was no central bank. The Fed was really created to help the New York banks. That's why the New York Fed has a lot of trouble, not to help the economy. The New York banks were getting comp competition from regional banks, which they weren't used to. And if you can have the government be willing to lend you money, <laughs> then you can leverage out the Kazubu, and that is exactly what's happened. They, they, that, that ability to borrow money from the government when you need and be bailed out, you leverage it out the Kazubu, and that's, that was, it was a banker's game, not an economic, uh, economic game. So I'm for, personally, I'm for the elimination of the Fed, a free banking system. I think the market would select gold as a standard. I don't know that. A market-based monetary standard. And I think it's huge because I don't, the government, I don't think we'll beat deficit spending without beating the Fed. Because I think it, without the Fed, Congress could not do what it's doing. It couldn't get away with it. And I, I think the best, I mean, I'm, not, I'm for fighting on the physical front everywhere we can, but I think the best strategy is undermine the credibility of the Fed. Uh, and I think we're getting, you know, we're going to have some mess sometime. I don't know when, you know, it might be five years, it might be ten years. It's going to be monetary policy related. And, and we're going to be ready with the, with the other solution, which is a, to me, a free banking solution, or at least we can get discipline the Fed based on the gold standard. Let's see. Oh, okay, questions over here. You said that you uh, recently went through and took the organization through a strategic planning exercise. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what came out of that? Sure. Um, we, we focus on a number of key opportunities. Um, let me just, just for time purposes, let me talk about the two that I think have the highest payback. Number one is being sure that we have the right focus in terms of the people we influence. Cato's a great organization, we're very efficient, but our total budget is only $22 million a year. We're competing with people that have billions of dollars <laughs> that spend in things like the public education system. So, you know, and we're competing against the mass media that's totally dominated by people we don't agree with, so on both sides, right and left. So, so how do we make change? And, and we came to the conclusion the best way to make change was to try to impact 
people that impact other people, elite opinion leaders. And across the spectrum from you know, conservatives, libertarians, to, to, to left-wing people and in, uh, independents, and across the economic, the culture from business to politics to, to the media to the academics. Who are the people that influence other people? So we're actually working on a process now for so each one of our groups. Let's take an issue like Social Security. Who are the 100 most important people in the Social Security debate? Who, who is going to have the biggest, it, it's going to affect other people in that debate. Those are going to be the, the, the customers of that Social Security group. And, and, and so they're going to write to that group, they're going to influence that group, they're going to talk to that group, and try to make them influence other people. So in every arena, we want to identify, I'm 100 is an arbitrary number, the, the key opinion leaders across the political spectrum, across the, the, the cultural spectrum, and, and we're going to try to influence those people. People that fundamentally agree with us philosophically, we want to give them the tools to be more effective in their work. People that disagree with philosophically will probably never change their philosophy. But we can try to convince them that what they are arguing for doesn't produce the outcomes that they expect. One of the classic, if you, you see this everywhere, and I see it really up here, statists in general believe that good intentions produce good outcomes. Sometimes good intentions produce out, good outcomes, but actually there's very little correlation between good intentions and good outcomes. So, what, so a lot of statist arguments are good intention arguments. What we want to show is if, that, if your goal is really to do this, raise the standard of living or, or deal with the real problems we have in Social Security, then having good intentions is almost irrelevant. How do you produce good outcomes? So we want to impact their policy by rigorous, objective research that says, hey, this is the outcome you want. This is the policy you're proposing. It won't work. Here's another policy position that might produce that outcome. So this comes from a business perspective. Influence the influencers. Uh, when we, when BB&T years ago entered the Raleigh market, we went after the top 10 people, business leaders in Raleigh, and, and got their business. And then that, that's, how you, that's how you did it. The second thing we're trying to work on, this is a little more challenging, is focus. And Cato is a very broad-based libertarian think tank, which is good, but we don't have the resources to do everything well. So we're going to keep being a broad-based think tank, but we've defined six focal areas. Uh, number one is physical policy, including entitlements, uh, uh, taxes, uh, deficit spending, because we're going broke. I mean, so nothing, <laughs> if we don't deal with that, all the rest doesn't matter. Two is monetary policy, because I don't believe that physical policy can be implemented uh, if, if we could change the monetary policy. Uh, 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 the, the third thing is, is uh, educational reform. Uh, we don't believe we can, we can win the fight in the long term without having a radical change in education. That we're really fighting the educational establishment, the ideas that are, uh, are taught in, mostly in our public school system. Our fourth thing is lead, libertarian leadership, and to some degree you see that in this room. Uh, we need a lot of young libertarians. The good news is libertarianism is probably the fastest growing idea on college campuses. Now it's growing from a really small base, <laughs> but, <it's, laughs> but, but percentage-wise, <laughs> and, and we want to be leading that effort. Uh, leading that. Well, now we went to college, there were none, so whatever we got now is infinitely more than then. Um, the, uh, the fourth, uh, let's see, I mean, the, the next thing is, con is our constitutional studies group, uh, which we believe that, that the biggest hope we have for buying time is through the Supreme Court. And that includes on civil liberties and it also includes on uh, economic freedom. In fact, Cato's had a phenomenal success. I don't know if, hopefully everybody saw this, we won 15 out of 18 cases where we filed an amicus briefs. And that's an amazing percentage. 
Uh, and it shows the court is moving in towards libertarians. Because some of our cases were definitely ones that we agreed with the left on things like gay marriage. And, and we went, now that is actually a 25, 30 year fight conducted by our constitutional studies group over arguments that have been influenced and by Cato in general. Some, sometimes, since we are in a long game, I know some of our sponsors ask, well, what, what effect are you having? Are you reelecting congressmen? Well, no, but we are affecting ideas that have a high payback. It's not surprising that the payback was first in the Supreme Court. Because that's more, for all their foibles, that's more of an intellectual body that's more interested in ideas. And it took 30 years. And it took not just the Constitutional Studies Group, but it took all of Cato creating this context. There's a bunch of articles from the left complaining about this, that the court is moving towards libertarian positions. And it clearly is. Now, have we won the fight? No. Did we win? Did we? But it's, it's directionally. So that whole battle of Constitutional Studies. And then the final area is foreign, foreign policy and defense, which is one of Cato's hallmarks. So two big things, strategic focus on who to market to and where we're going to put our marginal energies. That's the kind of things that came out of our strategic plan. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Sarah Harvard, and I go to American University. Um, obviously, with our current financial crisis, it is no doubt that the future of our, gener the future of our country is upon my generation. And I've personally experienced a lot of, you know, those, I experienced a lot of naysayers and those who doubt us. Uh, my question to you is that how can we as young individuals pursue for a more prosperous and advance to a more freer society? Um, those are all great questions. I think the first thing you need to do, and I, obviously you're doing, is educate yourself. Become knowledgeable of the ideas so that you can defend the ideas and influence other people. In that process, don't expect you have a conversation with somebody for that they will immediately change their idea. But you're planting seeds. And if nothing else, you can undermine their confidence in their own bad ideas. Because <laughs> a lot of these people hold these bad ideas, but they hold them very superficial. What you're going to find with most statists, most statists don't hold ideas deeply. They've just heard bromides and cliches from their professors, and they, but they don't really know what they're talking about. So really become a master of the ideas that underlie free societies and underlie free markets and why they're good. And, and you don't have to win every debate, but you have to be out there with those ideas, questioning why people believe what they believe. I think you'll be surprised how impactful you can be over the long term. Secondly, and I'll just say what I did in my own career, incorporate a set of philosophical principles that you believe will lead to your success and happiness. Uh, at at BB&T, we had 10 core values, and those values had actually come from my own personal study of philosophy. And I personally lived them in our organization, and I think the vast majority of people lived them. And, and when you, if you're really clear about your values, and they work in the real world, and they're non-contradictory, you will be a very impactful person, because most people have a hodgepodge of beliefs, many of which aren't consistent with each other, and many of which don't work in the real world. So get clear about your own values and how, what you want to pursue with your own life, and you'll have a big impact on people. I, I think a lot of people are more impacted I'm going to say who you are than what you, the ideas you present. You probably have seen that. And it, it, for the young people here, develop yourself holding these beliefs, and you will impact other people. You will. You won't have to win the philosophical fight. They'll see that your ideas are working for you, that they work in the real world, and they will want to do that. They'll want to do that. Yes, sir. I need to get over on this side. <laughs> All right, let me, let me answer that, and then I'll come over here. I'm sorry. Uh, I just have a quick question about your uh, autopsy of the 2008 crash. Uh, 
those factors are Right, I'll start with this. Uh, you mentioned all those factors about uh, you know, Clinton telling Fannie and Freddie to jump into subprime mortgages and the uh, Community Reinvestment Act. Would you say those had a greater uh, significance in causing the crash than the devaluation of the dollar that happened under Greenspan and the Bush tenure? Or, I mean, would you say that that was a bigger effect, a bigger cause, or a lesser one, or? or I think fundamentally the Fed caused it. It ended up in housing because of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. The, the, we would have had a bubble because of what the Fed was doing, and, and that bubble would have gone somewhere. It may not have quite been as... It could have, usually bubbles go into excess manufacturing capacity, which is bad, but not as bad as going into excess consumption. So Freddie and Fannie were secondary to Fed policy mistakes. And, and, and this goes, I talk about this in my book, this thing was really doubled up by what the Chinese were doing. The Chinese really helped a lot because they kept buying U.S. debt down so that Greenspan could do all this stuff and interest rates didn't go up. Interest rates should have been moving up like crazy, but they didn't because the Chinese kept buying our debt because the Chinese were trying to create an export economy. And they couldn't, unless we, we had the money to buy. So they were recirculating the money to us so in a certain sense, we had, a, we had a, a doubling up of the Fed mistake because of government policy in China. Um, this, this is a little esoteric, but when there are great advances in technology or something happening great, prices should be falling. The same thing happened in the 1920s when we had you know, automobiles and electricity. <laughs> everything, everything was going good. Prices should have been falling. The Fed kept prices for falling, and they called that price stability. Actually, what that did is let people think things were better than they were and created a massive misinvestment. In this case, it ended up in the stock market. In the early 2000s, prices should have been falling like crazy because the Chinese and the in India had entered the global market. And it was a huge improvement in global productivity. You should have been able to buy stuff a lot cheaper. Stable prices were not, was not a reflection of low inflation. It was actually a reflection of very high inflation that because prices should have been falling. That encouraged the Chinese to keep expanding their manufacturing capacity, to keep, you know, to keep, and, and keep this vicious circle, and us to keep consuming when prices should have been falling. And, and the fact the Fed kept prices from falling when you had this major movements in, in technology in the 20s and, and then globalization in, in the early 2000s led to, and, it, and it's the worst kind of calculation, because I, I know, having been through this, when you see inflation coming, you can adjust for it. When it doesn't look like it's there, but it's hidden because of what was happening, you tend not to adjust for it. So it led to worse economic calculations. And that was Greenspan plus the Chinese jumping up, piling on. Let me shoot the last one. Okay, let me, let me get one way over here, then this is the last one. Uh, Niall, Niall Ferguson wrote a great book called The Ascent of Money. Um, it talks about bubbles and how they're nothing new and things like that. Also, he has a section on Jose Pinera, who I understand has a relationship with Cato, mm -hmm. and the success they've had in Chile with privatizing Social Security, privatizing pensions, so on and so forth. Is that a realistic outcome in this country, or? Um, we, of course, we, we do work with Jose. We'd love for it to be a realistic outcome. How realistically, the, the dilemma that we face, we're in much worse shape than Chile was when they did what he talks about. We, our, our unfunded, both Social Security and particularly Medicare and, and, and Medicaid is so huge 
it's not as easy a transition. Conceptually, yes, but, but the mathematics are much worse. They just didn't have much of a pension system in Chile when he, when he changed his. Conceptually, we, we support the idea. Practically, it's much more difficult because of our whole amount of debt we have. Thank you, everybody.